Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by Apex Physical Therapy, the first physical therapy franchise. They are privately owned with 70-plus locations across 10 states. With more than 20 years of business and clinical experience, Apex Network offers unique business models that are designed to maximize profitability by providing you with the tools and resources you need to optimize owning and operating your own practice. So let Apex Network, who is recognized as a top 500 franchise in Entrepreneur Magazine, be the vehicle that takes you on the path to owning your own physical therapy clinic today. For more information, visit apexnetworkfranchise.com or call 314-391-2601. And of course, you can go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the link, and learn more about how you can own your own PT practice today. All right, let's move on to today's episode. So I was so excited to sit down with this wonderful physical therapist at the next conference in Chicago last weekend. He has been on the podcast before, and I'm so happy to have him back. Dr. Dwayne Scotty is a physical therapist, educator, researcher, and founder of Spark Physical Therapy. It provides rehab, prehab, and performance optimization services, either on-site or in the comfort of the home within the Cheshire Wallingford, Connecticut region. He is also clinical assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Quinnipiac University, responsible responsible for coordinating and teaching musculoskeletal examination, intervention, and advanced manual therapy within the orthopedic curriculum. So on today's episode, Dwayne and I talk about gymnastics medicine, talk about the most common injuries one might see in a a gymnast, how to evaluate, and some kind of basic treatment options, progressions, and really decision-making on how to return this gymnast back to practice and back to sport. We talk about differential diagnosis and so much more. So I really want to thank Dr. Dwayne Scotty for coming back on the podcast. Last time we did a great interview with Jenna Cantor. This time he sat down with me since we were both uh, in Chicago. And as myself, a former gymnast, this episode certainly has a special place in my heart. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dwayne Scotty, for coming on. And everyone, if you're interested in gym, in treating gymnasts, this is a fabulous episode, so enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm coming to you live from Chicago, Illinois at the APTA Next Conference, and I have the great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Dwayne Scotty, Dr. Dwayne Scotty, physical therapist. And today we're going to be talking about gymnastics medicine. So Dwayne, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Karen. It's uh, good to be back. And I have to tell you, gymnastics is something near and dear to my heart. I was a gymnast for many, many years as a child, and um, luckily I didn't have any major injuries. But what we're going to be talking about today are kind of the most common injuries you might see in a gymnast. And this is something that Dwayne is so passionate about. These are the people he sees. So if you're a physical therapist out there, 
maybe you have the off chance that you might see one of these uh, young athletes, I think this will be really helpful for you to give us your insight. So, Dwayne, tell us, what are the three most common injuries one might see in a gymnast? Well, I think uh, first off is I definitely do have um, a passion for this area, like you state, because I have a daughter who's a gymnast. So that is one of the things that I kind of, in my career, from a clinical standpoint, kind of focused a little bit more in this area, spinning off of like dance medicine and got into the realm of helping gymnasts out because I did see there was a need in the um, local club in our um, region. So in terms of the most common injuries, I would say, you know, definitely low back pain um, in gymnasts and specifically extension-based low back pain. So because of all of the kind of back bends, you think about they do like bridges, back walkovers, back handsprings, all of those, especially in the young developing gymnasts. So usually the smaller ones, like the level fours and fives, they're doing a lot of those skills. Um, a lot of times you'll tend to see that occur as well as a lot of the compressive loads that happen, um, especially during your floor passes in gymnastics. There's a lot of compressive loads as well as shear loads that get transmitted to the spine. And can you kind of briefly tell us what exactly you mean by when you say a compressive load? And can you give an example of when a compressive load might happen and a shear load, same thing? So it's really the compressive load is if you think of landing, right? Okay. So you're landing, your body weight is coming down. So we know that actually landing, you know, there are some studies that look at between 12 to 17% of your body weight is actually, or times your body weight is actually being loaded through the spine. So that's that compressive load, as opposed to like a shear load, which would be something like if you think of doing that back bend or that bridge where you're getting one bone kind of shearing on the other. And in the young developing gymnast who is still growing, that can be problematic. And then that's where we start to see things such as stress fractures. So and that's kind of really the most um, you know, important thing and the, and the thing that I try to intervene and educate because a lot of times most gymnasts have the perception that maybe back pain is normal with gymnastics due to the training and it's going to happen. But being a young gymnast with their bones developing, if they develop that stress fracture, that could be detrimental to their long-term health if it goes undiagnosed. Oh, that was my next question. So let's talk about differential diagnosis of that stress fracture, because I think that's really important to think about. And I would imagine that a lot of therapists aren't thinking stress fracture when they're thinking of a young girl or a young boy. Most of the time we think stress fractures in our older adults with osteoporosis, osteopenia. So how do you diagnose, differentially diagnose that stress fracture from other types of uh, cause, from other causes of back pain? Yeah, so the stress fracture is what they call spondylolysis and it is really diagnosed based upon the history. So kind of taking a report, it's something that typically it can occur acutely from like a specific landing where they felt an acute kind of sudden onset of back pain. But usually it is something that's developing over time and it's not getting better with rest and it continues to get worse over time. Um, and then there are some things on the physical exam that we can evaluate whether they have pain, usually commonly with extension. So they're you know doing a standing extension test or a stork test, standing on one leg, bending back. Um, you can look at the irritability based upon if they have pain with that 
or to, if they don't have pain with like a press up on their stomach, then I feel pretty confident that this person doesn't have a stress fracture, um, that it is more muscular. But you always have to kind of make sure and rule that out. And then looking at confirming that so you you know you send them to a specialist a spine specialist it's not going to show up on x-ray unless it's chronic by that point that they'll see that callus formation on x-ray but it's really an mri or a bone scan and a lot of times you know if it is kind of consistent with the history then even the specialist may not even recommend an mri just because it's sometimes not necessary so sometimes it just requires that kind of protection phase and avoiding the extension-based activities, and then that allows that to heal. And how long is that protection phase? So it's around, you know, everyone's different, but around six weeks. Okay. So that's the most common time frame you'll see, and there are some that recommend bracing. So they call that like the, the Boston braces, the Bob braces, where they will brace them so that athlete is actually preventing any backbending at all. So they're not going into any extension. It forces them. So it's a hard kind of turtle shell mm -hmm. um, brace. And they'll wear that for six weeks to really make sure that it heals up. Because some of these young kids don't even realize and they don't understand the severity of it. Mm -hmm. So I actually just had a girl um, recently who... You know, we tried not bracing at first and then symptoms weren't getting better and now she's braced, so it will allow things to heal. Nice, and I was, th my next question was actually gonna be, how do you communicate this to a young boy, young girl, young gymnast, um, that it is of utmost importance to not move into these motions? And then I'm sure you're reinforcing that with parents, guardians, coaches, etc. So. Talk to us a little bit about the communication that needs to happen around this uh, child with uh, stress fracture. So I'm lucky in the fact that I'm on site. So I have these relationships with the coaches already. So I'm seeing a lot of the gymnasts actually within the gym. And I have those relationships with the coaches as well as with the patients I see. The parents are always there during the evaluation. After every visit, I'm always communicating. You know, even if they're not there for the visit, we do the visits in the gym. And then I communicate all my findings on each day with them. That being said, it gets challenging, especially during competition season. So it, this is where the difficulty comes in, and I think it is a very um, important role we play as healthcare providers where sometimes we have to be the bad guys because we're looking out for their health. Mm -hmm. So I had a girl this year before regionals. It was, you know, big competition for her, and, and we have to make that decision, and they're tough decisions. And mm -hmm. if things are sounding and going down that route that you think stress fracture, then it's like you have to take care of your long-term health. And it's, you know, one of the hardest conversations, honestly, I've had. I go, you know, home at night thinking about these decisions. I have these long conversations with their parents. And, but in the, you know, in the, in the long run, when I reflect back, I'm like, okay, this was the right decision because, you know, I don't want this, you know, female to have persistent low back pain for the rest of her life and she wants to have kids one day and grandkids and be able to move later in life. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're thinking for their long-term health. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And, you know, I used to work at the Lion King in New York and I remember it was like the, their last performance at the new Amsterdam theater before they moved to the Minskoff. And one of the young Simbas was limping around, limping around. So they brought him in and he was not fit to dance that day. And so I had to make the mm -hmm. professional decision 
to call in stage management, call parents, call tutors, call everyone around this huge production of he can't go out and dance because I'm looking out for the long-term health. So it is a lot of tears, which I'm sure you, mm-hmm. you can attest to, mm-hmm. but you're right. It's being a good healthcare professional. It's not about just that moment. It's, right. yeah, it's looking out for these young kids. Right. And, you know, I definitely pride myself on, you know, getting the recovery for injuries as quick as possible so mm-hmm. they can get it back out there doing what they love, um, being able to compete. So when something like that happens, you know, you almost feel like, oh, was I a failure or, and, you know, but yeah, you have to totally. think about the bigger picture and their long-term health versus that short-term gain. Yeah. That's when you take you yourself out of it right. as the therapist, as we should all be doing. Right, right. We check our ego at the door. Mm-hmm. It is not us. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes things happen. Timing sometimes sucks. Mm-hmm. And we have to make decisions based on what's in front of us. And I think if you're making the, what you feel is the best decision at the time for the health of that patient, then it's the right decision. Right. No, absolutely. Totally agree. And all right, so outside of stress fractures uh, in the low back, what uh, are there other common types of low back pain? Is it muscular, mechanical low back pain? And, and what do you then do for those uh, gymnasts? So very good. Um, mainly, there's not a, a huge amount of mechanical low back pain that I tend to see when we think of disc-related low back pain, Mm -hmm. sometimes some facet joint, but these kids are a lot younger. So it is usually muscular in nature. I kind of see that common pattern, but it is usually due to an underlying instability in the lumbar spine. But honestly, more importantly that I'm seeing is the contributing factors. So specifically looking at hip flexibility, so limited hip flexibility, specifically the hip flexors, um, is going to cause more lumbar extension as well as kind of um, weakness or inactivation of the glutes. So these girls are doing these leaps and they're doing these movements where they are extending their hip, but they're really not turning on their glutes and they're using, you know, if they do have flexibility issues. So I found, you know, addressing those issues Number one, from a treatment standpoint, is going to be helpful in the long run, but also from a prehab standpoint. So in prevention, and that's what I kind of do in the gym with all these girls is take them through a full screening, help to identify those risk factors, and then get them on plans to address the soft tissue care because they are doing a lot of strength and conditioning. Their front of their hips get really tight, Mm -hmm. and that causes that excessive shearing in the lumbar spine. Great. So I think uh, for me, a big take home here is when you're looking at these young kids, you're not, they're not just tiny adults. And so we're not necessarily looking for disc issues, but rather we really need to look above and below to kind of see, well, are there, is the, the back pain, this muscular back pain, a result of compensation from other parts, right? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. And then even the the core stability Mm -hmm. aspect. So most of these gymnasts are like super strong, but sometimes there's still these little muscle imbalances that you can find with like a good examination Mm -hmm. that they're not using the muscles you think they're utilizing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, even physicians and, you know, these athletes will go to a you know, a pediatrician or primary care provider or an ortho. And then they're like, oh, well, they're, look at them. They're jacked. You know, like you've seen gymnasts, they're jacked, right? They're in like really, really good condition. Yeah. So they, they're like, oh, there's no way they could be weak. But no, like when you actually watch them move and you watch their movement patterns and you pick up on some of these weaknesses and then, you know, having them 
get into when they're doing their exercise, like, okay, well, where are you feeling this? And it's like, oh, if they're not feeling in their glute at all, they're like, all they're feeling is in their hamstrings. So I find a lot of that, they're kind of using their hamstrings mm-hmm. to extend their hip joint and not using their glute. So you kind of work on correcting some of those kind of muscle imbalances. Perfect. All right. So let's move off of low back pain. What's another common thing that you see in your gymnast? And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Dwayne's answers. Today's episode is brought to you by Apex Network Physical Therapy, the first physical therapy franchise. Apex Network is privately owned with 70 plus locations in 12 states. With more than 20 years of business and clinical experience, Apex Network offers unique business models that are designed to maximize profitability while providing you with the tools and resources you need to optimize owning and operating your own practice, all while remaining independent. Let Apex Network take you on the path to owning your own physical therapy clinic today. For more information, go to Apex Network Franchise or call 314-391-2601. So definitely, you know, the most in terms of the research too is ankle and foot are kind of the most common region or, you know, area to be injured. And most of that is due to traumatic um, ankle sprains. So they get their classic inversion ankle sprain, um, whether it's off the beam, landing from a pass on the floor, um, dismount off bars, everything, vault, like you name it, you know, an ankle sprain can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it usually happens in practice, um, not so much in competition. We know that the majority of gymnastics related injuries happen during practice. So I do see a lot of ankle sprains. I do a lot of triaging, um, especially because I'm on site. So I need to make that clinical decision on, you know, do we send them out for a radiograph? So I utilize the Ottawa ankle rules um, and seeing, you know, if they can't put weight on it, then they're definitely getting the radiograph. Yeah. <laughs> um, if they're having pain and they have that bony tenderness, then sending them out for radiograph. And again, this is where I see us as physical therapists being able to make an impact in our communities in being that point person and make that decision. So the athlete goes to the proper place versus just putting ice on it and then going home. And then, you know, so I've been able to kind of streamline that process for a lot of the athletes um, that I see. Fabulous. And I don't think we need to go into the ins and outs of ankle, uh, sprain rehab but have you found amongst this population what is one thing you can tell another therapist if you do nothing else to rehab these gymnasts after ankle sprain you must 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 include this in your program can I say two things yes (laughs) Um, so first is one thing that I see overlooked a lot is mobility issues Mm. so a lot of people have the assumption that you sprain your ankle you have a loose ankle and we need just stabilization stabilization and that is important don't get me wrong and kind of proper stabilization going from your balance activities proprioception to plyometrics definitely necessary you need to do the plyometric training with your gymnast before you release them to do gymnastics training Um, but also checking for mobility issues specifically lack of dorsiflexion doing like a weight-bearing dorsiflexion test and I've seen that where there's you know asymmetries on both sides and that's going to be important because when these gymnasts land from their um, floor passes a lot of them sometimes land short and if they land short that requires more dorsiflexion motion so that can in turn cause you know more um, limitations of dorsiflexion anterior ankle pain so you really want to make sure you normalize the joint mechanics in the towel curl joint and do your manipulation mobilization techniques to kind of restore that so that's one thing and then especially if someone's been immobilized. So if they're immobilized in the walking boot or in an air cast, a lot of times you'll find stiffness in those joints as well as the distal um, tibiofibular joint. 
perfect. Thank you. That is great. I would, I would have thought your first answer would have been proprioception exercises, which are important, but I'm glad that you brought up the mobility stuff. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Let's talk about one more common injury that you see in this population. So this is more your kind of growth um, plate injuries. So the kind of growing gymnast, as they're growing, they go through that growth spurt. So commonly in the younger gymnasts, so like the nine, 10 year olds, you're gonna see like the sievers. So they're gonna have heel pain, um, the calcaneal apophysitis. And then as they get a little older, usually around 12-ish, um, you're gonna start to see knee pain. So whether or not it's SLJ, singing larsen johansson syndrome, which is the inferior pole of the patella, or the more common one that everyone knows about, Osgood Slaughters, which is at the tibial tubercle. So you will tend to see these kind of growing um, pains, if you will. Um, the big thing is to educate and um, the parents, the gymnast, and there are things that they could be doing at this time. They don't just need to train through pain. Um, and usually it relates to soft tissue flexibility. So for sievers, it's really the calf, the Achilles, make sure they're on a good mobility flexibility program for those structures. And then for the knee, a lot of rectus tightness I tend to see. So working on some of the flexibility, mobility during this time period and watching load management. So maybe not doing their rigorous training. And if they're going through that kind of growth spurt, starting to get some pain, and now let's say like summer conditioning starting, then they might need be able to kind of do a modified practice, especially when it comes to the jumping and the plyometric training. So they're not doing, um, because we know that's what really causes it. And that's why the incidence is so high in gymnasts is because they're going through this rapid growing and they do a lot of jumping, um, a lot of contraction of the Achilles, a lot of contraction of the quads. So that's why you tend to see um, pains in both the ankle and the knee area. Perfect. Yeah. I had a patient a couple of months ago, Seaver's disease. She was nine and she was a gymnast. And what was really interesting is I would have her, because I I needed to see how she jumped Mm -hmm. and how she landed. And I don't know if this contributed to it or not. In my line of thinking, I felt like maybe it did, but when she landed, she tended to land in a very valgus position of her knees. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, can that, so looking at the biomechanics of the landing, can that help in the treatment of Seaver's disease? Because then we kind of worked on that so that she wasn't landing in quite such a a valgus position. So that in my, my line of thinking was that if we can help to normalize her landing a little bit more, that she'd be able to more effectively use her calf muscle Mm -hmm. in order to land instead of being at this very sort of sharp valgus angle. Yes, no, I think that's definitely important. And then even, I guess, going one step further than that is looking sagittal plane and with ankle dorsiflexion. Mm. So if they're limited there because their Achilles is tight and their gastroc is tight, I see that even more so. But maybe, like you said, if even if they have weak hip muscles, so your abductors, external rotators are weak and they're going into that dynamic valgus, you know, could that be a contributing factor to different mechanics going down at the ankle, possibly? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there's so much to think about with these gymnasts that you would not think about in your ordinary population, right? Right. No, absolutely. And it is, like you said, they they have such high levels of training. You know, the girls I see, you know, once they get up to level six and above, they're in the gym for 24, you know, 25 hours a week. So it's a lot of training. They only get like two weeks off a year. 
So it's like at the end of the season before summer starts and then before fall starts. So it's a lot of training, a lot of wear and tear on their bodies. And that's why it's so important to be able to pick up on, you know, contributing factors because every gymnast is different too. So someone's going to have maybe tightness in the front of their hips. Someone's going to have some tight calves. Someone's going to have maybe weak shoulder muscles and they're starting to get shoulder pain with bars or tight lats. So that's a common thing where they're limited with overhead mobility um, with reaching. So you, you kind of need to identify what each one does. And that's what I like to do is to get them on like a customized kind of program. And it's like, okay, here are your like top five exercises you should be doing before practice every single day. So as opposed to just like chatting with your friends, like let's prime the body, let's get, you know, warmed up. If it's rolling the front of your hips, doing some glute activation exercises, make sure they're turned on before practice starts. That's what they need to be doing. And, you know, I was just going to ask you, what advice would you give to, let's say, any physical therapist out there listening, or healthcare practitioner, who maybe doesn't have the amount of experience you have with the gymnastic population, but like I said, maybe they've got a gymnast coming in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you just kind of answered that. Um, Do you want to add anything to it? What advice you would give to that PT? Don't be afraid to reach out and talk with the coaches. Um, I think a lot of the gymnastics world and culture, um, I tend to see a little bit of kind of medical professionals on one side, coaches on the other. The coaches think that the medical professionals don't understand their sport and vice versa. The medical professionals think that the sport is just bad for them and they shouldn't be doing it almost, that it's too much and it's not good for their bodies. So I think we need to kind of meet in the middle and actually communicate and have these conversations and, you know, try to meet in the middle. And that's what I tend to do with the coaches and because they I could see where their mindset is and I you know with my years of experience coming from the kind of clinical mindset and injury side and I've I've shifted a little bit in some of my thought processes as well um, being able to actually be on site and see some of the training that they do and to see some of the practices so just don't be afraid to communicate and I guess reach across you know the aisle and be able to see okay this is what I'm finding and even just letting them know that hey, this is pretty irritable right now, but it's a minor problem. But if she can do a modified practice today and tomorrow, and then she has off on Sunday, that will give her three days of this kind of protected rest phase. And then next week, she'll be able to do full practices. So if you kind of frame it like that, then the coaches are like, okay, I could, I could deal with that. Versus the coaches being like, no, they can't modify practice right now. We have a competition in two weeks. But if you kind of frame it that way and say like, hey, if we just allow these couple of days, and then next week, they're going to be able to have full practice without limiting themselves at all, then they're more likely to kind of go with your recommendations versus, you know, everyone being on kind of different sides. Perfect. I think that's great advice. Communication is vital in everything we do with our patients from all the different stakeholders that are involved to the patient themselves to parents and caregivers and to each other. So I think that's great advice. Thank you so much. And I have one last question for you. And it's the one that I ask everyone, and that's knowing where you are now in your life and in your practice, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad right out of physical therapy school? So this is a tough question because I hear this all the time because I listen to all your podcasts and you would think I would have the answer right off the top of my head. Um, But I would probably say uh, there's a couple of things is one, just not be afraid to fail. That great advice. Failure is good because we learn from that. And then don't abandon certain techniques or philosophies early on if you're not getting it right. Continue to learn, grow, evolve, and that's how we all get better in what we do. I think that's wonderful advice. Yeah. It's perfect.
perfect. Very, resonates with me very much. So thank you, Dwayne, for coming back on the podcast again and educating us all around gymnastics medicine. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Yep. My pleasure. And everyone out there listening, thanks so much. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.